Welcome to Deep Dive Into Five, where we answer your most common questions on a clinical topic. This is Deep Dive Into Five, answering your questions about homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. I'm Dr. Zahid Ahmed from the Division of Endocrinology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Dr. Don Wilson. I'm a pediatric lipidologist at Cook Children's Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. We've had the real pleasure of discussing homozygous FH or HOFH with our primary colleagues during our presentation, Emerging Challenges and Clinical Updates in Primary Care. Unfortunately, we were unable to answer all the questions, so we'd circle back now to talk about those important questions and provide some answers. So, Don, between the two of us, we've got five questions to answer in the next 15 minutes. Zaid, I have the first question for you. Could you talk a little bit more about the diagnosis of homozygous FH? This is a really important question, and it's a cause of confusion for a lot of providers. So when you diagnose someone with FH in general, the first step is to rule out any other causes of extremely high LDL, like nephronic syndrome, hypothyroidism, and cholestasis. Uh, for example, uh, someone with nephrotic syndrome can get LDL cholesterols as high as 1,000, and it's related to their proteinuria. Uh, so such an individual has a secondary cause of high cholesterol rather than a primary cause like homozygous FH. And when you do diagnose FH, it is based upon their LDL levels as well as the clinical scenario. So if, that, if you have no clinical scenario and you just have an LDL level, 568 milligrams per deciliter is kind of the cutoff where you really think about homozygous FH. If you know that both parents are diagnosed with FH or if one parent is diagnosed with FH, then an LDL of 400 is kind of the cutoff for you diagnose homozygous FH. And if you know the individual has some stigmata of homozygous FH, like aortic valve disease or xanthomas before the age of 20, then the cutoff for LDL is 400. So I do want to point out that tendons and domas occur in homozygous FH, but they also occur in heterozygous FH. That doesn't mean it's homozygous, but it does mean that the patient has a genetic cause of high cholesterol, specifically familial hypercholesterolemia or FH. And the genetics can confirm the diagnosis, but aren't really required. And I do want to point out that early diagnosis is important, and typically the earlier diagnosed individuals tend to have much higher LDL. So would it be fair to say that anyone who has a child or adult who has a LDL cholesterol of 400 or more should really be investigated for the possibility of homozygous FH? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good cutoff and certainly requires a lot more deeper dive into what's going on. So Don, that leads right into the next question about pediatric lipid screening. Could you review for us for the, rec the recommendations regarding pediatric lipid screening? Absolutely. So in the United States, we have recommendations for universal screening starting at, on average, around 10 years of age, somewhere between 9 and 11. So if the child has ever been screened before, whether they have a family history or not, or whether they have any kind of physical stigma or illness, we just automatically test the kids at 10 years of age. That test, by the way, can be done with a non-fasting sample to make it feasible in a clinical practice. Yeah, thank you, Don. So is there ever a scenario where you would check earlier than that age? Yeah, absolutely. So children two years of age and older should be tested if there's an informative family history. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. But one or both parents taking lipid-lowering medication or has a known uh, history of heart disease or other family members that have heart disease or a child who's adopted, in which case you don't have the family history. So 
anytime after two years of age, uh, it's fair to do that. And we also cascade screen children. So we screen at 10 and find someone who's affected with that phage, all the siblings younger and older are going to get screened. So again, the issue of cascade screening is just as a reminder, it's basically taking first degree relatives and determining either by biochemical or genetic testing, if you have that information, who might be affected. And then based on that information, perhaps testing uh, second degree relatives. So that's been very successful in our program, which are your Sahid in terms of identifying folks who didn't know that they were at risk and trying to intervene long before they have any type of event. Yeah, and I can add on to that to point out that the rest of the world is much better at cascade and family screening than we are. For whatever reason, maybe because of the way our healthcare system is structured, it's harder to do family screening here. But that doesn't mean it's not important. So we also have a lot of questions that try to rectify or kind of understand the contrary recommendations out there. You know, the American College of Cardiologists and American Academy of Pediatricians, if you compare that with what the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force says, there, there are some differences. So can you tell us why those differences exist? And is one recommendation more or less evidence-based or anything? I appreciate that question. I mean, it turns out that the uh, U.S. Task Force does a fantastic job. On this particular question, it doesn't help you as a clinician to answer the question. The reason why is that the uh, U.S. Task Force actually uses only randomized controlled trials, which requires a five-year window in order to answer the question. In this case, if they're looking at screening versus in leading to a heart attack, well, a heart attack is not within that window of opportunity. So that question could never be answered with randomized controlled trial. So for clinicians, what you have to do is look at other evidence. And fortunately, in all the uh, major Societies and, and departments in, the, in the, the world basically have looked at this and looking at epidemiology data, looking at genetic data, looking at uh, prospective trials on a short-term basis, we pretty much can tell you that screening actually does identify atherosclerosis and the vulnerable population. And atherosclerosis is the basis for cardiovascular disease later on. And so I think as well intended as the uh, task force job was, they weren't able to answer the question for clinical practice, but fortunately others have. And so absolutely. In fact, the recent uh, European statement 2023 endorsed worldwide universal screening. So now the whole idea is that everybody in the world should be screened at least at 10 years of age. Thank you, Don. That That's very informative. Let me ask you a question. Um, the issue of genetic testing. So this is an autosomal codominant condition. What's the role of genetic testing? What nuances should we think about? Yeah, so genetic testing is, you know, it's getting a lot easier to order and to implement in a clinical practice. But I would recommend at this time that probably it should be an experienced lipid specialist or maybe a geneticist or a genetic counselor who should kind of tackle that a testing and a discussion. And that's because of those nuances. So the nuances are in things like genetic discrimination, which unfortunately still is an issue in the U.S. And the other nuance is that the testing results sometimes can be pretty confusing, uh, specifically when they they come back as variants of unknown significance. It does help if you have some experience with genetics to put that variant of unknown significance into context, and also how to discuss that with an individual who did the genetic testing, who got genetic testing for them. And so the, uh, at this time, it's widely available. It should be used. It's a great tool. 
but it does help to have an experienced person handling the discussion. What about in the pediatric community? Are there pediatric conditions for a pediatrician might discuss genetic testing? And is this one of them or is it more like a team like you have that kind of support the family in the decision making? Well, yeah, I think you said very well, there's some complexity here and there's some pros and cons that need to be discussed with the family, but I can't imagine pediatricians and perhaps family physicians having the time to do this. But at the end of the day, both of those groups do a fantastic job of newborn screening. So as you know, that there's upwards of 30, 32 newborn screening tests that we do. You can't be expert in all those areas, nor should we assume that primary care physicians are going to do that detailed screening. But I think what they do is play an important role in comforting the family because they're very close to those families in terms of telling them what genetic testing is and then preparing them for conversations for, for clinics like ours to go into a more detailed discussion. The other thing that's very important is that families understand we're doing very targeted screening here. We're not surveying a whole gen a genome. We're basically looking for primarily four informative genes that control cholesterol. So before we move on to from genetic screenings, I, could you talk a little bit more about the specifics of genetic testing vis-a-vis -vis either cost and or specific laboratories that you would recommend? Yeah, so there's now like 70 different companies that offer genetic testing for FH and lipid disorders and in general for many different disorders. There's an NIH website called the Genetic Testing Registry. It's a nice website. You put in the condition you're, you want to do genetic testing for, and it gives you all the different companies and labs that'll do it. And in terms of lipid disorders, the main choice is usually an FH-specific panel. For the adults that I see in lipid clinic, genetic testing is almost always covered by payers, which is right now fantastic. If it's not, then many of the commercial labs or companies will have a cash price. It really helps to document the clinical diagnosis as well as what criteria you use to make a diagnosis. So for FH, you can use this American Heart Association criteria we kind of talked about previously, or payers are often looking for this Dutch Lipid Clinic Network score. And there's online calculators to help you figure that out. Well, I think it's part of being a good steward to document the indications while we do any test, but this in particular. The other thing that comes to mind, uh, some people may know this, some may not, but if you do genetic tests in certain labs and you find an informative gene, so one that alters the LDL is basically pathogenic, uh, they may offer uh, free testing to the other family members. And so we've actually diagnosed children at 10 years of age and then vicariously diagnosed their parent, one of them at least because it's not a civil covenant condition, and several of the siblings based on genetic testing. So there you can kind of cut to the chase and they don't charge the family. So I think it's a tremendous service. That is a very nice perk. What of the uh, few, right? Yeah, you don't get any perks of medicine. So if you get it, take it. So Don, let's move on to the next question. So let's say you're a community pediatrician and you screen and diagnose someone with homozygous FH. Hopefully at two years old, like as you mentioned before, that's a good time to screen if you have a high suspicion, like if they have a clear family history of FH. So what's next? What should our colleagues in pediatrics and primary care do after they make a diagnosis of homozygous FH? So I think the key thing you said there is that the pediatricians and family physicians play a key role in this process because unless they screen and identify the patients, we don't have an opportunity to do much beyond that. But once you do identify a child who has a probable genetic disorder, such as FH, certainly homozygous FH, 
And I think the role of the primary care physician is to prepare the family for the next step, which would be referral. These kids probably need to be seen by a lipid specialist, either pediatric or someone in the adult world who also takes care of children or families, and then have a candid conversation about what that is and what it isn't. We try to see these children fairly soon because I think the level of apprehension is quite high, particularly if there are affected family members, such as a mom or a dad who's had lipid disorders. You also have to realize that there's some guilt on the part of the parents because one of them has it, then that's a genetic disorder that's been transmitted to the child. So there are a lot of conversations that need to go on. In our clinic, I'm sure here as I eat, the first couple of visits are just getting to know each other, talking a bit about what FH is and then giving them some resources and things to think about, but gaining their trust. Because particularly in homozygous disease, the aggressiveness of therapy is going to be very important in terms of establishing control of that cholesterol. Because we know that the outcomes of these children are dependent upon that. I really enjoy becoming part of these families and having that conversation. Yeah, so it's very important to find someone like you, a lipid specialist, who you can refer to and can take over a lot of the care and has experience with this this situation. And ties into what kind of support is there out there for people and families with FH, both homozygous and heterozygous. And there's there are several you know well established organizations that have fantastic information online: Family Heart Foundation, the National Lipid Association. American Heart Association, International FH Foundation, any of those are fantastic resources. But the one I often send my patients to is the Family Heart Foundation. And the reason is they're actually run by people who have FH, both heterozygous and homozygous FH. Not only are they run by them, but they have peer support. So if someone needs to understand things a little bit more, needs to understand the journey that they're going to go through in life or that their children will go through in life, you know, there are people out there who can help guide that and, and share their experiences. That's extremely powerful, and it's a lot more than what we can do in our 15, 20-minute visit that we have in clinic. And so I, I often point people to the Family Heart Foundations. They can oftentimes take over and, and kind of educate people about what to do. And uh, they're even moving into the realm of doing cascade screening, where they can help get family members screened and make sure that you're seeing a doctor. They, can, they have a website that actually has a map of lipid specialists around the country. And you can search based upon area to find someone that that knows about this condition and that can help out. I'm glad you no. mentioned that because I've used it myself to locate like a referral somewhere maybe moving out of state. And you know, I didn't know that those existed, but and you may not in if you live in a metroplex area, you may not know who the people are in your community that are taking care of these kids, but uh, that's a great resource to have. Still, by far, the best way to find more cases of FH, make sure people get treated earlier, diagnosed, because they get treated earlier because they get diagnosed earlier. And we reduce, we really reduce the burden of cardiovascular events that way. Well, that'll practice adult medicine, but I realize that, you know, cardiologists, particularly if someone's had an event, they have a lot on their hands. But after the death settles and you have that individual kind of settle down on the treatment regimen, stable treatment regimen. Don't forget to castrate their family members. So they usually have children, perhaps grandchildren. And so that process is equally effective in the adult world as well as children. So, Zaid, we're almost to the end of our time here. So let's take one more question here. There are several clinicians who have asked about homozygous FH and concurrently testing for elevated lipoprotein A or healthy little A. 
Have you seen those two together? And what do you do about it if you do? Yeah, so they are essentially independent genetic conditions. Uh, so you can have homozygous FH due to mutations in genes or in LDR receptor or genes associated with LDR receptor. And then you can have different size of lipoprotein, little a. And both of those things independently increase the risk of heart disease. And I have seen the two things together, unfortunately. And as you might imagine, the interaction is that if you have them both, the risk of cardiovascular disease is really quite high. And so it is important to screen LPLA in individuals with homozygous FH and also heterozygous FH. It's also important to screen it in the general population because one in every five people will have high LPLA. If you do identify somebody who has high LPLA, you probably would be a little bit more aggressive with cholesterol lowering as well as changing lifestyle and things like that. We don't yet have a drug on the market to reduce lipoprotein LA or LPLA, but it may be coming soon. Maybe in a few years, we'll have something that, that actually can work for that. So along the same lines, Don, do you check lipoprotein LA levels in your pediatric patients with homozygous FH, or is it variable during childhood? No, actually, the expression of the LPLA gene starts around two years of age, and so by five, the LP little A is pretty much at adult level. So it's going to be elevated. It'll be elevated at that time. And you see very, very little variability in that level uh, throughout childhood. So we do measure it. Uh, we don't necessarily ask general pediatricians to do that because I think it's part of our risk stratification. And we have, uh, you know, the time and experience to explain that to people. But it is a significant risk enhancers. If you look at any recommendations, for many of the national organizations, uh, they basically say if you have an elevated LP LA, in addition to homozygous or heterozygous disease, then you probably need to readjust your thinking about what the target LDL cholesterol is in order to get the best outcomes. So we do use that information. Uh, it's a little tricky explaining it. Thanks. Thank you, Don. With that, we are out of time. Don, that was fun. And thank you for joining me today to dig a bit deeper in homozygous FH. Well, thank you for sharing your insight. And for the audience interested in learning more about homozygous FH, you can go to the NACE website at naceonline.com where you'll find a webcast on this topic. NACE reminds you, please like us on Facebook at NACE CME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and valuable programs to help you in your practice and help you improve the lives of these folks who are at risk. So, and finally, we want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this discussion. It's clinicians taking the time to learn about homozygous FH who make real impacts on these patients' lives by recognizing and diagnosing them and getting them to specialized care they need.